was just very anecdotally from that kind of instinct about all those different things that I realized somewhere in uh, in 2019 that things weren't going well. And it was when I kind of um, got about halfway through my book tour and um, into the the election battle bus tour that I did really realize we were going to lose. Catch the bus and go to work the way I did before. It's the same routine most every day, except I guess I see my folks much more. Hello everyone and welcome to The Popular Show, a popular show about politics, populism, pop culture. Uh, you're popular just by being here. I'm uh, Alfie and I'm here with my friends. How are you, Izzy? All good, thank you. Got my coronavirus vaccine this week, Vax to the Max. Oh, you did. No, you did. Hey. Right, you relatively high priority on the, um, yeah, you, you're, you're, my mum just got hers, so you're about age 60 on the... Uh, coronavirus age scale <laughs> pay me attention all the time and this is the latest you know, that. uh david how are you it's a it's a it's a lovely day here in newfoundland um you know i'm feeling uh you know we had snow squalls today it was sunny it was it was it was wet it was wet it's just typical day in the middle of the atlantic i'm just so happy to be here with you all and and just so happy to have grace here I know uh, um, last week I listened, I was obviously missed last week, and I heard that James introduced you as the beauty from New Fee. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really from Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) The pill from Philadelphia probably is more likely. (laughs) (laughs) I did enjoy that. James, how are you? Uh, Well, I'm unvaccinated and still in my PMC cage, but you know me, I can't complain. And it's absolutely brilliant uh, tonight to be joined by Grace Blakely. How are you, Grace? I am excellent. Thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure our listeners know, but um, Grace is a political commentator on the left who's been uh, um, part of the Corbyn movement and part of the the post-Corbyn movement as well. And currently is a fantastic column in Tribune magazine uh, and the podcast as well, A World to Win, which is... um, coming out through Tribune, which is just fantastic, doing interviews and discussion from the, the socialist movement around the world. And uh, we're going to talk to Grace today about the left on this day of the on this day of the UK budget. So it's like the most unthrilling way into a, a conversation about <laughs> on this day of the, uh, the, the 2021 budget. Uh, we're going to talk to Grace about where the left is uh, and where we should go. Uh, do you want to kick things off, James? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, the budget, maybe we can just get... Grace's sort of snapshot take on what's what's going on today, how that's looking. So, good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it is mostly very boring. Um, we've had a precipitous increase in fiscal events over the last kind of five years or so, as the government's kind of decided to announce that one budget per year is not enough excitement for the country. So we now have. Um, but we have we've had so many budgets recently. A lot of them have been emergency budgets and, you know, various different kinds of changes as to, to what the government's allegedly doing. But anyway, this one was supposedly big because Rishi Sunak was going to basically park his tanks on Labour's lawn um, and announce things like a corporation tax increase, uh, a national investment bank. Um, you know, various different kinds of policies that are all aimed at supporting this kind of levelling up agenda, which is basically his kind of political terminology for trying to hold on to the voters in the regions that the Tories don't really, I think, fully understand uh, why they won. Um, So, yeah, we had an increase in corporation tax. Um, 
to, you know, relatively high levels, similar to what was being proposed by Labour in the last manifesto. Um, we also saw, I mean, a, a couple of other things which I think are broadly good, like the £20 uplift in universal credit was maintained. And that was something that things like, you know, like disabled people's groups, DPAC and others were really campaigning very heavily for. It's only for six months. So that's not good enough. But, you know, it's good. It's there. The furlough scheme, again, is uh, is being maintained. Um, we saw things like, you know, again, some kind of um, some uh, verbiage, <laughs> for lack of a better word, around a kind of green industrial strategy. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, the idea that there was going to be a, a national investment bank, some funding for decarbonisation, investment in the regions, that sort of stuff. Um, perhaps one of the biggest things in terms of like policy wonk circles has been the change in the mandate of the Bank of England to include considerations mm. of, of climate breakdown, which was, again, something that was being discussed and considered by people around the Labour Party for quite some time. Um, but again, you know, I think the thing I've been saying a lot today is that the, uh, the kind of top level appearance of a lot of this stuff conceals some kind of more um, dubious issues that exist underneath. So, for example, with corporation tax, um, firstly, you know, we have a massive problem with corporation tax. Corporation tax doesn't raise very much money because a lot of big businesses are able to avoid or evade or whatever, shift their profits to get out of paying corporation tax. The government's also decided that it's going to be it's going to massively increase basically the amount of money that businesses can claim back against the amount that they invest. Um, so these kind of capital allowances, it's it's basically a kind of a bit of a I don't want to say a loophole in the tax system because, you know, it is used for a specific purpose, but it's certainly a way that corporations can get around paying more tax, allegedly by increasing investment, but doesn't necessarily have to be to do with that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, the, the UC uplifts expiring after six months uh, and, you know, all the rhetoric around like there being this big amount of money for a kind of green industrial revolution was not matched by the amount that they were planning on spending. But in terms of, you know, political strategy, it, it it's clever because they know that Labour isn't going to outflag them to the left. So they can almost, as I said, kind of park their tanks on Labour's lawn and say, look, we're raising corporation tax. People don't know that that is not going to be associated with a big increase in corporations actually paying profits. They just think the government's going to charge corporations more. So it, you know, it's 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 clever politics. Um, it's uh, it's just not there's not much there in terms of substance, in my opinion. When we spoke to Crystal Ball uh, from the Hill, uh, we asked her, you know, what do you make of um, politicians on the right increasingly um, adopting kind of left populist economic policies and you know the the common left responses are they're just they're just saying that they don't actually deliver on these things and uh, crystal's response was that um at least you can see the kind of savvy thing becoming pretending to be economically left wing which a few years ago was impossible i'm really interested in the way in which despite the kind of resounding defeat of the left populist experiments in both the US and the UK, we're sort of seeing elements both of the aesthetics and of the policies kind of showing up in displaced form, both uh, in the, the ruling Tories over here and the ruling Democrats, centrist Democrats in the States. Um, what's your take on that, on the way in which policies which seem to have been crushed and have the door closed on them, nonetheless, are kind of showing up in this displaced way? So I think there's a couple of different things going on here. Firstly, I mean, it's really important to bear in mind that we're not just seeing the Conservative Party suddenly shift to saying, you know, we're basically socialists now. Um, you know, it's important to bear in mind that these parties are not just randomly picking their positions on various different issues. You know, they are tethered to a particular class base. And whilst the Labour Party has made over successive decades quite significant attempts to detach itself from that class base, the Conservative Party undoubtedly is still very much rooted in uh, in its origins, which was, a you know, it was developed as a party to kind of support the interests of capital. Um, well, I mean, first the kind of aristocracy and then eventually um, it adapted to, to become the party of capital. Um, and 
what we're really seeing today is that the interests and the needs of, of capital have changed. So obviously, as a result of the pandemic, businesses, businesses need more support. And that's also something that we've seen in the budget as well, is that the loans to businesses that have been extended by the government um, over the course of the pandemic will you know, be rolled over and expanded. Uh, we're seeing yeah, kind of various different changes to taxes. So VAT changes, uh, which can affect particular kinds of businesses harder hit by the pandemic. The Bank of England has been um, providing huge amounts of support, often to very big businesses through financial markets um, under its remit of kind of promoting financial stability, basically. Um, and yeah, that's effectively meant taxpayer support, but public, public support for some of the biggest corporations uh, in the UK. Um, and that is, I think, really how we have to understand this, what, what seems like quite a profound kind of discursive and, uh, and and policy shift from the Conservative Party. It's first and foremost about the fact that the needs of their base have changed. So policy has changed. And it's not so different as to what we saw during the financial crisis when you had, you know, huge levels of state intervention in the economy. Um, the Labour Party, well, leftists in the Labour Party had been calling decades previously for the banks to be nationalised. The fact that that was happening many, many years later doesn't mean that... Um, uh, you know, Gordon Brown had suddenly realised that Tony Benn was right. It meant that, you know, the needs of British capital had changed and even the Labour Party had to respond to that, the Conservative Party much more so. So there's that to bear in mind. The other thing is, as you mentioned, it's, it's politics. And I do think that, you know, there has definitely been a shift in people's kind of basic understanding of how the economy works and how it needs to be changed in recent years. Partly that has been to do with a kind of ideological shift and a discursive shift that's been pushed by Labour. It's also partly just been a material shift. You know, people's lives have become very, very difficult. Um, and if you ask someone, you know, let's say two years after the financial crisis, when maybe, you know, for someone who hasn't lost their jobs um, or, you know, who hasn't seen like a massive decrease in their wealth, um, do you want radical change in the economy? They're mostly going to be responding based on fear. It's like we're in a crisis. Things need to, you know, broadly say the same. Things need to get back to the way that they were. Ten years after that, when things haven't gone back to the way they were, when you've had a decade of wage stagnation, when you've had, uh, you know, looming environmental crisis, mounting inequality, all sorts of other problems and challenges within the British economy, people are much more likely to say, actually, you know, clearly we do now need uh, something of a shift. So that was that material change as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Conservatives have always been, I don't want to say they've they've been good at marshalling a populist strategy because I don't think it's necessarily been the same as, as what we've seen in the US broadly um, with Trumpism because, you know, the Conservative electoral strategy has always been about aligning the interests of the people that, they were kind of, you know, created to represent, which is those at the very top of society, the kind of top 1%, and um, a, a section of the middle classes, the kind of property-owning middle classes, um, who can basically be relied upon to support policies that are going to maintain the status quo because it will protect their asset prices and won't have too much of an impact on their living standards. That's basically been the, the conservative deal since Thatcher. Um, and, you know, in terms of policy... What we've really seen for the last 10 years has been based on sustaining that bargain. It's been quantitative easing that boosts asset prices um, combined with, you know, a, a form of um, austerity that has primarily been aimed at undercutting um, the power of organised labour and the power of movements that might emerge to kind of uh, agitate for a change to the status quo by cutting away uh, basically any support for um like a, a set of, you know, decommodified, um, uh, you know, public services and, uh, and and that sort of stuff that allow people to survive outside of, of the market mechanism. So I don't really think this is as big of a shift as we think. It's just that the, the economic basics have changed. I wanted to, to discuss, uh, you mentioned DPAC earlier, um, which for anyone unaware stands for Disabled People Against Cuts. Um, so it would be good to hear your thoughts on the relationship between disability and poverty um, in light of today's budget, which uh, had no mention of disabled people, social care. And as you've written about, a huge proportion of the UK's um, COVID deaths have been disabled people. But fiscal and social inequality for disabled people existed long before the pandemic. Um, there's also a lot of misunderstanding 
from the general public, it seems people often picture a disabled person in a wheelchair, but wheelchair users only represent 8% of disabled people. Mm. That was in your um, podcast episode. Um, so, you know, just what can be done here to create more awareness of these conditions? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, you've just made a bunch of really good points. Like, uh, it's it's something approaching 20% of the working population is classified in one way or another as disabled, just meaning that you need more support to be able to just live your life. It's also just a real testament to the kind of moral bankruptcy of successive conservative governments that the concerns of disabled people have been completely and utterly ignored. I mean, if you ask anyone on the street, should we be delivering public services that are going to support disabled people to live independent lives and allow them to, you know, basically keep a roof over their heads, prevent them from dying, basically, almost everyone, 99% of the British population would say, absolutely, that is, you know, our obligation as, uh, you know, just human beings towards our fellow human beings. And yet, over the course of austerity, um, those uh, those provisions were stripped away by the Conservative government, uh, by successive Conservative governments. And um, the United Nations accused those Conservative governments of you know, severe breaches of the human rights of disabled people. And that has continued over the course of the pandemic. It takes too long Um, a lot of us were surprised uh, by the by the Brexit deal that the Tories ended up closing on, and um, I wonder what your take on this is. Uh, it, it looked to some of us like actually quite close to uh, um, the the Lexit settlements that a lot of us wanted. It, it did withdraw from a lot of the kind of financial authority of Europe, it did repatriate quite a lot of economic policy. Um, and it was very telling that among Keir Starmer's demands for, you know, what uh, he thought the, the deal should look like, it included, you know, much closer parity with the markets of Europe. So a actually, Starmer's, uh, bre you know, pr proposed Brexit's uh, <laughs> modifications were far more neoliberal than Boris Johnson's. Um, I'm sure that's up for debate. But I, I wonder how you how you'd fit the context of of Brexit and that deal in particular um, to to yeah the, the this current budget um, and also are there other opportunities for the left to build on in the current rhetorical direction that the Tories are taking. Do you see any sort of promise in that? Yeah, so on the Brexit question, um, I mean, I think the really important point to, to come back to, and the thing that I always used to say whenever I was doing media on this at the time, was that Brexit is not a thing, it's a process. And it still is a process, but it particularly was a process at that time. And the meaning of historical processes is obviously worked out um, through you know both the kind of material and institutional changes that those processes bring about but also through the changes in the way that we speak about those things um and what has been you know interesting about the brexit process is that as a kind of phenomenon it has been almost completely kind of colonized by conservative party ideology so it has been about this particular vision of sovereignty this particular vision of kind of you know independence in an international system that is a kind of drawing away from the UK um at, well drawing away from Europe I you know in, in some in some of these people's uh, views um, and the whole idea I think behind Lexit was about saying well no this event which has yet to be defined could be defined differently so you know a lot of people when they voted for Brexit didn't really know why they didn't have a very clear idea about what they were voting for, about why they were voting for it. And, um, you know, I think that that not only speaks to the nature of the question that was asked, but it also speaks to the kind of inherent, um, you know, like liminality of this phenomenon. Like it could have been one thing, it could have been the other, it existed, you know, in between lots of different uh, political categories that we usually understand. And when the left kind of, um, you know, really stepped back from trying to ascribe a meaning to it. That was, in my view, when we lost. 
and that I think comes back to this this question as to why these two policies are so different because uh, you know a left uh, Brexit a left kind of process of leaving from leaving the European Union would not just have been about the specific um, you know nature of the exit deal um, and of course you know some of these policies that uh, that that some of the kind of um, stipulations in uh, in the agreement that Johnson has. Uh, has solidified could potentially have been part of a of a left leave deal, but the end point would have been completely and utterly different. You know, if the Conservatives want to exit all these different agreements, it's probably because they are seeking to get as far away from the European Union as possible so that they can include the areas that they have exited from Europe with in trade deals with the US, with, you know, various other parts of the world that they see as, uh, as, as more important to the future of the British economy. And that is all, in my view, part of a vision of basically kind of making the UK into something like a tax haven off the coast of Europe, which is is pretty much a kind of completion of the project that was really started by Margaret Thatcher. The left vision would have been to say, you know, the European Union is and has for a very long time not been really supporting the interests of workers. It has been promoting the interests of capital. It has been associated with this, um, you know, set of policies that have led to a long-term rebalancing of power away from capital and towards labor everything from you know capital mobility to on privatization um to you know within the eurozone the stability and growth pact and uh you know getting away from those things would make it easier to uh do a bunch of policies that a socialist government in the uk might want to do and all of that obviously you know is secondary to the point that a big argument for Lexit was that the Labour Party needs to take this thing seriously, otherwise it's going to lose. And ultimately, <laughs> that was the only thing that really mattered in the end. The kind of theoretical and ideological arguments yeah. for leaving were always secondary to the fact that there were lots of us who were saying, if you don't take this thing seriously, we're going to lose votes at the margins uh, in lots of seats that we need to win and that's going to be decisive in determining whether or not we ever see a socialist government in the UK so that's the main thing it's really bad when Friday comes because I know the weekend lies ahead the walks we took So Grace, what what just while we're taking a, a, a minute break, I just want to tell you that those prints behind you are gorgeous. What are oh, they? Really? Oh my god! Yeah, I love them. Sci-fi. I love them. Yeah, sci-fi. I think them on the internet somewhere. You know what? I think they are from Instagram targeted advertising. No, that's that's not. Not. That is no, they they really do hit you where they do hit you right. I'm gonna push Alfie's Instagram. He does a lot of cooking well, on his I don't Instagram do anymore. I, oh. <laughs> it's a dead Instagram. I don't do oh, it anymore. Grace, do, do you, oh no! I mean, my, my whole idea with it was to um to sort of bait. It's like sort of bait people with like lovely looking food, but then instead of a recipe, it's actually a political Corbyn. It was part of my Corbyn um, campaigning, but it wasn't. It no longer existed. Well, it's still on there. You can still see my... my you my see, tattoo. this would have been perfect for me because this is my two big pandemic interests. It's just Instagram and cooking. I bought a pasta maker the other day. Yeah. Like, I have oh, socialism. Yeah. You can see my, well, my, my... Me and my pasta maker are on the Instagram. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, actually, oddly, this is a way into my question, um, which is about um, this time when you and, and earlier you said that um, uh, that it was, you were talking about how the the sort of working class electorate shrunk and then uh, you know gradually started to grow uh, at the Corbyn at the Corbyn moment. I think that's really important, and it occurs to me to think of like Starmer and I mean I mean you know Starmer and Johnson now as like almost or, or the Labour Party and the Tory Party now as like. Pe- two parties who agree what the electorate should be and they're both more comfortable with that working class element of the electorate shrinking and disappearing and battling over the kind of remaining or or what they've become what has been the comfortable voting electorate uh, and i just feel like you know this is is this an incredibly 
hopeless situation or or because clearly what was special about what was and it, and this was also something that was born out in my experience of it when I was I, I live in Crouch End it's a properly bourgeois area where basically people are basically starmer starmer types um and um I was like canvassing for the Labour Party all through the election and um we were given these lists from the Labour Party saying these are the doors you're allowed to knock on uh, and number by number you make notes or whatever and it's mm. all the it was all the big the big middle class houses and you'd knock on the door and it would be like, are you voting Lib Dems or are you voting Labour? Mm -hmm. And as soon as we started going off the off the agenda of what the Labour Party had said and just knocking on council estates and going a bit further down towards Tottenham in our area where things are more working class, we, mm -hmm. we suddenly started accessing people who were not even on this list. Uh, who were not on this register, who were actually wouldn't have voted at all uh, yeah. had we not knocked on. And I think they that, wouldn't have been on the register, happened, yeah. you know, yeah. And and I just think that that was what was most important about that moment. Um, and that's something that just seems to have really disappeared. So I just wonder what you think of all that and the situation we're in. Is it like, is it therefore like completely hopeless that, you know, I mean, I left the Labour Party out of frustration about this, but is there any yeah. hope that this might, this situation might change or, or do we just need, you know, do we just need to be done with the Labour Party because of this? So I think the thing to bear in mind is that when it comes to Labour, this is a long-standing problem, but it's not something that has characterised Labour throughout the whole of its history. Uh, so there is a good book on this called The um, the New Politics of Class by um, Jeff Evans and James Tiley, which looks basically at how um, consistently, basically over the last 50 years, uh, working class people's views on policy have remained broadly the same. So this idea that people have shifted to the right on economics is, is not particularly true. People are, are still pretty much the same on everything from kind of tax to unions. And there's, you know, obviously uh, changes from year to year and electoral cycle to electoral cycle. But broadly speaking, there's been a lot of stability there. What has changed is that those working class people just don't really identify with a political party anymore. And that isn't really surprising. This has been a trend that's been particularly obvious since 1997. It isn't really surprising, given that obviously Labour used to be the party of organised Labour. You know, the clue was in the name. It used to be the party of Labour, of people who, uh, you know, had to sell their Labour power for a living because they were not owners of the means of production. Um, of anyone who did any form of Labour in the economy, domestic Labour, you know, the Labour of going to like pick up your welfare check, like whatever. Basically, anyone who wasn't wealthy enough just to survive without doing some form of work. Um, and yeah, that really changed when um, I mean, it changed because of really more than Blair, I think, because of Thatcher, because Thatcher, Thatcher really kind of deeply transformed British political economy um, by creating this kind of buffer class, this really big buffer class, actually, between, you know, um, the uh, most impoverished elements of the working classes and the elites at the very top. And these were everyone from kind of relatively low earning um, workers through to the professional managerial class. And suddenly because of right to buy, because of um, the deregulation of the financial system, pensions privatization, these people became asset owners. Um, and Thatcher's whole plan was to make sure that their identity as asset owners trumped their identity as, as workers. Um, so rather than kind of, you know, organizing within unions or pushing the Labour Party to advocate for their interests as workers, they increasingly saw that they were better off just voting Tory um, so that, you know, you'd get a continuous increase in asset prices. And that put the Labour Party in a bit of a sticky situation because how were they supposed to deal with this new set of cleavages that had emerged in British society? Ultimately, Tony Blair decided that he was going to just accept that this was the way things were and target middle class voters on the assumption that the working class was safe. They didn't have anywhere else to go. So they were always going to vote Labour. And that's really when working class people stopped voting Labour. And it was particularly people outside of London and the South East um, who just saw the Labour Party as increasingly um, unmoored from their lives, from their concerns, from their views of the world. And this continued all the way up really to actually... Um, I think there was a slight reversal in um, turnout in 2015, but it was really in 2017 that these trends started to uh, to to reverse definitively. And you did see more working class people turning out uh, and when you did see more of them voting Labour and then Brexit. I mean, Brexit had, you know, created this big increase in turnout because so many people had joined the electorate to, to vote in the referendum. Um, but Brexit was then really what kind of undermined that and uh, and allowed the Conservative Party to 
basically recapture in 2019 a lot of the working class voters who'd entered the electorate to vote um, to vote in the referendum. So that's the situation that, that we find ourselves in today. And it's it's very complicated. Um, and I kind of resist um, any characterizations that state um, you know, that there's there's an easy way out of this, right? Uh, I think that um, you know the the links between the changing political economy of the UK, the changing class structure of the UK, our majoritarian electoral system, and the internal dynamics of our political parties create quite complicated dynamics that are often quite unpredictable. And at the moment, what we're seeing, it looks like, is that the Conservative Party has, for one reason or another, been able to capture at the margins the, a, an amount of votes from working class people that they need to win various different seats in the regions. Whether or not Labour is able to win those back is really going to, to depend upon whether they're able to learn the lessons, not just from 2019, but from the elections over the last 40 years. And it's like, what makes working class people turn out to vote and what makes them turn out to vote for Labour? Generally, if they're turning out, they're turning out to vote for Labour. So what makes them turn out? You know, what makes them not turn out is when you take them for granted and say, actually, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think. We're just purely focusing on the middle classes. We know that what makes them turn out, um, you know, what made them turn out in 2017 was a really clear and um, quite kind of conflictual in terms of creating conflict between different groups, like, you know, the many and the few, um, quite kind of, you know, populist, basically, economic narrative. Um, and unfortunately, that does not seem to be a lesson that the current leadership really wants to learn. Great. Can, um, can we get you onto some more, like, personal territory? You've um, oh god! You, you, <laughs> <laughs> not too personal. Um, you were you were uh, a, bit, a big part of um, what we call Corbyn World. Um, the sort of very abrupt need to create a, a kind of left commentariat and media sphere um, once Corbyn had won. Um, you brought out you know, a book on finance, stolen, and, and subsequently a, a book on uh, on the effect of the coronavirus on on the economy um but can you sort of tell us how that came about like how, how you got politicized how you ended up getting kind of drawn into that commentator world around Corbyn after 2015 yeah um so I remember so I was actually not really that political at university um I had done my undergrad in PPE I pretty much hated it I then went on to do a master's in African studies because I was like, I'm going to go, you know, basically kind of save the world. I had yet to dismantle my white savior complex. Some people would say I still haven't dismantled mm -hmm. it, but there we go. <laughs> um, so I remember really vividly uh, watching the results of the 2015 election, um, having voted for the Greens because they were the only ones who opposed austerity um, and just being like, actually like crying, like staying up all night to watch this and crying mm -hmm. because Ed Miliband lost even after you know, the the mugs and the, you know, controls on immigration and the stuff around austerity, whatever. I was still so upset. And it was at that point that I was kind of like, uh, maybe, you know, I do care about this stuff. Maybe I should reorient my efforts. Um, so, yeah, it was it, it was around that time that I really decided rather than doing a PhD, I was going to go to the States and do a PhD. Um, I would stay in the UK and I would work for a think tank and then I would go from working for a think tank to... Um, you know, having some sort of role in policy. And that is basically what I did. I left university, I worked for a think tank for a bit, and then went to work for a management consultancy, which was appalling. And, you know, I could speak about for a very, very long time about how it speaks to all the, the deep kind of, you know, pathologies of British capitalism, everything that I was doing, but that was a, a story for another time. And then I went after that, after about six seven months back to think tank world to work for IPR and it was there that I kind of was much more involved with um all the kind of policy influencing that was going on around the Corbyn project and I was you know a very outspoken supporter of Corbyn at the time and I was writing lots and saying lots occasionally getting trouble getting in trouble for getting too political or too radical um and after kind of basically having some training in, in policy work 
and, uh, and and you know all the stuff around that I was then like okay you know I want to take some of this and actually write something that I uh, that I think is going to have an, a real influence on what the Labour Party is saying and not just a kind of small p policy influence but actually a kind of narrative and and discursive influence that's going to really shape the kind of foundations of the offer that that, that labor is uh is is giving to the electorate and that's when i was like i want to go and, and and write stolen and from there it just kind of all snowballed really i don't really know what happened i took six months off to write my book and you know by the end of that six months uh i just done loads of media within um you know two months after that i'd been on question time and um you know i managed to finish the book it came out i had this big book tour then the election happened that whole year is a bit of a blur i just don't really remember how i got from like the book to you, do you, the end do you of mean 2019 2019 okay yeah um, so like when did when, if ever, did you start thinking that we were going to win? And when did you change your mind about that? When, so, when did when did it feel like this wasn't just kind of intellectual think tank work, but rather a program that might happen? For about a year after the 2017 election, mm. I really did believe that. Um, and that was obviously the context in which I was writing the book and I was like, right, OK, we need to take this narrative forward somewhat. We need to really consolidate this coalition. We need to really be thinking quite heavily about, um, you know, not just the theoretical, but the kind of political foundations of this project. And how we can link those two things together. Um, and it was really when Brexit started to dominate the agenda that I started to lose some faith in what was happening um basically because you know just as speaking to lots and lots of different people um who had voted leave all over the country um and realizing how profound their objections were going to be to a labor leadership that they already maybe kind of had an instinct about being a bit wishy-washy a bit kind of you know i don't know uh the type of the types of people who would when you were down the pub with them like tell you off for saying the wrong thing rather than Nigel Farage who would just be a bit of a laugh right and I mean this speaks to so much about what's wrong with political debate in this country but it was ultimately like such a decisive factor in determining how people viewed Labour we just ended up looking like I don't know people who were going to say, well, the public didn't know well enough, so we're going to give them another chance to make the decision that we would have provided for them if they'd let us act on their behalf. And for me, that kind of really undercut everything that I've been working for, because mm. the whole thing that was really at the heart of the socialist project for me, the kind of renewal of the socialist project we've seen in recent years, was like the recentering of democracy. It's kind of like, you know, the... the um, bringing together uh, the um, workerist roots of the, the labor movement with the kind of um, movementist elements of the 60s and uh, forming that into a, a coherent political project that had ideas of, of justice, equality and freedom all kind of aligned together within this vision of, of basically class, class conflict um, and saying that our vision of the world was going to be one in which we were handing power to workers. And it was very difficult to say we want to hand power to workers when people would come back and say, well, a lot of people voted for Brexit. Why don't you want to give them power to make their own decisions about that? Um, and, you know, it was just very anecdotally from that kind of instinct about all those different things. That I realized somewhere in uh, in 2019 that things weren't going well. And it was when I kind of um, got about halfway through my book tour and um, into the the election battle bus tour that I did really realize we were going to lose so um you know the the exit poll didn't come as so much of a shock to me as it did for, mm. for some others I think how come you could see that uh, uh forgive me an, an Oxbridge PPE graduate <laughs> but but John McDonnell and Diane Abbott uh could not see it this was a very factional thing in the party where Carrie Murphy, yeah. James Milne were, were of your conviction, as, as far as I know, whereas that sort of McDonald's side 
was was happy to you know walk into the pro EU protests with with Keir Starmer and and Alastair Campbell. How did that kind of look factionally to you? Were, were you kind of part of this in, internal party? struggled or did you just have a kind of no I really I really wasn't like I wasn't kind of as like part of the machinations that were going on as maybe it looked because you know I was on tv all the time but I really wasn't involved with a lot of the kind of internal party political stuff um you know the I had two reasons for knowing knowing what would happen one of them was just a very very deep conviction that people (laughs) basically hate politicians they hate anything that looks sounds smells like the establishment um and that uh aligning oneself with the forces of the status quo in the context of a deep decline in you know people's living standards which were seen at the time was going to put them off you and not just put them off you in general but put the particular people that you needed to vote for you in the places that you needed them to vote for you off you so there's kind of a theoretical element to it there was also the fact that i've been going all around the country talking to people and because like you know i was well known enough to be invited to places but not well known enough to be like mobbed so that i couldn't speak to anyone after events i would actually Mm. speak to people um and hear what they were saying and you know it was very obvious people were just like we are speaking to people in our constituencies they're saying oh we liked a lot of the policies but we voted for brexit and why don't these politicians want to keep their promises it sounds like everything that we've ever heard from every politician ever um and it just steadily became more and more obvious you know i didn't actually let myself believe it would be you know, giving myself too much credit so I knew what was going to happen. I didn't let myself believe that this was actually going to happen despite all the evidence until the last possible moment. Because you can't really, you know, if you're going around trying to kind of support a cause, you can't. But there there came a point, probably about two months before the election, where I realised that it was was probably done. Great. I, I love revisiting these timelines. I think the last year is really interesting. Um, about a year ago, (laughs) I mean, I mean, interesting in the, in the sort of the Chinese proverb sense, but, you know, uh, but last, uh, last year, uh, a dear friend of mine, and I think a colleague of yours, Michael Brooks, uh, I was, I was a producer on the show. Um, he interviewed you about sort of, you know, the sort of the bailout that we need, you know, and I mean, that alone was a big loss for 2020. Mm. Um, but I watched it again today. You know, and it was hard for me, you know, just personally, but it was yeah. also things where I think there was some hope in your voice. I mean, it was a great time of tragedy, but hope in your voice about what we could turn this tragedy into. And I have to ask that in this sort of biographical sense, where are you now in the sense of that sort of greater bailout versus where were you a year ago? So I think, and I mean, this is actually going to get really personal. I think purely in terms of my own mental health, I am not as good as I was a year ago. Um, Like, you know, I think a year ago, I still, I mean, you know, I still on an intellectual level have a profound faith that what has happened over the last five years has reshaped the left in a way that, you know, would have been unimaginable seven, ten years ago when you looked at the state of the British left, um, you know, actually more than that, because we had the student movement, but, you know, 15 years ago, like around the financial crisis, it would have been unimaginable to have the level of, um, of structure and of depth and, you know, just the extent of the, the support that there exists on the left today. Um, we've got all the media institutions. We've got, you know, lots of people who are out, like really speaking very, well on behalf of these issues and we actually have a proper grassroots infrastructure that is allowing people to get involved um and i think that's really really important so that is what gives me optimism also the material weakness of capitalism gives me optimism um because you know there is only so long that people are gonna um allow themselves to be oppressed and exploited and trodden all over by the ruling classes i think if there's anything that has made me 
if, if I sound less optimistic today than I did a year ago, it is literally because I haven't been in those spaces, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that like um, being in uh, spaces with people who are just as committed as you to similar, if not the same, um, if not definitely always the same values uh, and, you know, knowing that you're part of a, of a political project, um, it's like oxygen, really. It's like for a socialist, it's like, you know, the soil that allows you to kind of grow and, you know, just feel good and happy. And we've obviously been missing that. And I think that's really had probably quite Ooh. a big impact on me, especially trying to write a book being completely alone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> alone. I'm with my partner don't feel too sorry for me but like you know shut in a house in South London um with it's obviously I'm not complaining because it's so much worse for so many people but like it it has an impact doesn't it it hasn't yeah. it's had an impact on anyone no, and if that's think, the, um, yeah no, I, I think that's actually a really important point. I think that like a lot of people um, who were so libidinally invested in the left and, and who who felt so passionately about the Corbyn movement. And now, obviously, we're, we're in this kind of we've had a rather strange year in a lot of ways, which in, in mental health terms has been harder. Mm. There's, there's obviously a tendency to sort of put those two things together and feel incredibly hopeless about the left yeah. because we're feeling pretty low in general. But, you know, it's, it's made, I mean, and, and of course, there are very legitimate reasons to feel pretty shit about the left. But on the, on the same time, there's perhaps a need to remind ourselves that, you know, that, that, that this was a kind of um, massive movement and that there will, you know, we will it's feel good again it's and it still can be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, so that's in a way that's quite an optimistic um, answer. I think that's a really important point. Izzy, did you have a, another question for Grace? I think. Yeah, um, it seems in the UK increasingly uh, a middle level government position is a PR job. And I say this as someone who works in tech comms. <laughs> um, so, but you know, you're kind of, it seems that um, those, those government, middle level government officials are announcing positions for the publicity of saying, uh, you know, you have X opinion on Y. Um, and we've seen this with Chaco Yamana and Luciana Berger in terms of you know, ex-Labour MPs who went into PR, specifically Edelman. Mm. Um, Chucker now works at JP Morgan. But elsewhere, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of beyond left and right. You know, we've had George Osborne, um, mm. you know, became, becoming editor of the Evening Standard, now as a full-time banker. Christian May as, was editor of City AM, now sector head at another PR agency. Mm. And BBC is obviously full of ex-Tories and or BBC journalists becoming... Um, official Tories comms people mm. so it, um, it used to be that you used to use the media for policy whereas now policy is about seems to be about media headlines people can potentially generate because of a PR career so it's as if policy doesn't even matter anymore it's mm. not about governing it's about the background and admin looking at Britain's elected officials and where they end up professionally afterwards like, do you have any thoughts on this and what does that say about our attitudes towards running this weird island? So it's interesting because I tend to kind of look at political economy more in terms of like structures rather than individuals, right? So looking at classes, looking at fractures within those classes, at relationships between different classes and institutions and that sort of stuff. Um, and I think in in that analysis, whilst it's important because like we're way too, in my opinion, because of the way the media works, focused on individuals and not enough focused on kind of the broad structures that kind of, you know, really provide the foundations to the way that society works and reproduces itself. You often lose the kind of quite gross levels of corruption and the revolving door that do exist within the British establishment. Um, and... I think there are a lot of so like I'm aware and vaguely versed in some of the sociological literature that does look at um, the overlaps between, um, you know, people who hold powerful positions in various different influential sectors of society and, and powerful institutions. And there's this idea of elite power theory, which comes down to, you know, way ages ago, like C. Wright Mills, who wrote about these kind of elites that dominated American society and would go between the military and the government and, you know, big business. Um, and that you know, tradition has continued. And today there is still a uh, very obvious, um, well, there's, there's still, you know, a, a, board, a broad body of research that looks into the very obvious links that exist between, um, yeah, like, as you said, you know, uh, people who've been very senior in the media, people who've held powerful positions in 
corporations, who've been on corporate boards, in the financial sector, within the state, in international institutions as well, actually in the NGO, in the charity sector. Again, there's quite a lot of a, there's a big revolving door there. Um, and, you know, of course, that reinforces these structural pressures that exist to basically ensure that the interests of the ruling class are the ones that are um, uh, really kind of centred and, uh, uh, you know, that, that dominate the most powerful institutions within British society. Um, you know, I think if I was to go a little bit further down into this, I would kind of really view these institutions um as uh, so Palancis has the view uh, has a view of the state as a kind of site of class struggle he's a kind of Marxist theorist he says the state is a site of class struggle and it's a site in which the interests of a particular class can be articulated and in which those interests can be organized for in which those those interests can be won and I think you could say that about a lot of institutions within British society and in that sense they kind of reflect the balance of class power that exists outside of those institutions but also powerful individuals can play really important roles in determining how interests are articulated and how um, groups organize to make sure that their view of the world is the one that comes to dominate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I suppose it comes back to that age old question between like structure and agency. It's like what's more important, the kind of big class structures or like the individuals that act within them. And I think the revolving door that you see within the British establishment um, that is just a revolving door within one particular class that allows them to generate this broad cross-cutting hegemony throughout all these institutions just shows that actually, you know, a lot of the time it's not agency or structure, but they're actually both working in the same direction. Grace, you're, you're one of the great communicators on the British left, and uh, we want everyone to get hold of Stolen and the Corona Crash. Can you just tell us briefly like, what you're working on next and what we can... Uh, what we can expect to see from you down the line. That was very kind. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm currently working on another book. Um, it's probably going to be my kind of biggest intervention to date. Uh, and the idea that I'm working on is really looking at the, the mythology of the free market within capitalism so the mythology of free market capitalism and actually showing that we don't have free market capitalism we have a kind of oligarchic capitalism um, and it really links to that qu last question you were just uh, you just asked really about um you know uh, the revolving door and class power it uh, the book is really going to look at the way in which our economy has increasingly been become dominated by a small number of very powerful corporations financial institutions um and kind of government agencies and international agencies that have really been able to kind of plan what goes on in an allegedly kind of free economy. So I'm kind of looking into this idea that, you know, we don't live in free market capitalism, we live in planned capitalism, and uh, how we might shift that towards a more democratic model. Um, so it's less focused, I think, on the kind of particular moment that we're in, which I think the last two interventions that I've done um, mm. have, have been very much more focused on, and is really thinking about right, where should the left be focusing what are the big issues that we need to be incorporating into our analysis of modern capitalism over the next decade really.